Can you all hear me? Is it good? So tonight I'm going to talk about something that I'm sure all of us at this point in the retreat are very intimately aware of. Dukkha. I'm going to first talk a little bit about Dukkha, how the Buddha so brilliantly defined it, and then how mindfulness transforms Dukkha. Dukkha is transformed. So the very first teaching after the Buddha became enlightened, he offered a conceptual framework of understanding. This was the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And it's interesting that, you know, the truth of the Eightfold Path or the truth of cessation, they weren't the first noble truths. The first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. So that is really a fundamental starting place for all of us as we uh, seek our freedom, as we seek our well-being and our happiness. The first sermon again clarifies what dukkha is and how it fits in with the rest of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said, such is dukkha, it can be fully known, it has been fully known. Such as craving, it can be let go of, it has been let go of. Such as cessation, it can be experienced, it has been experienced. And such as the path, it can be cultivated, it has been cultivated. So in this very beginning teaching, you know, in another teaching the Buddha says, I'm telling you this and please know I wouldn't tell you this if you did not have the capacity to practice this. He's like uh, some kind of very benevolent mentor saying, you can do this, you can do this. And, um, you know, he shows us that we can do it because he was just a human. And uh, this is what he tells us about the one of the most fundamental uh, practices towards our deeper well-being, our freedom, our happiness. So what does he say about dukkha? There's actually quite a bit in all the suttas uh, in the Theravada tradition about dukkha. I'm not really sure about the other, about Mahayana or Vajrayana. I'm sure that there's a lot about dukkha in there. But um, definitely in our suttas, we, you know, the Buddha tells us a lot about it. He gives us some really fundamental, excellent information about it. He says that uh, all forms of dukkha share a really deep sense of unsatisfactoriness, a sense of incompleteness. And we as humans, maybe those of us uh, raised in the, uh, with some exposure and raised in the predominant view of the West, um, I think many of us might experience it as somehow not living up to our human potential. 
Have you had any of those thoughts like, what is my potential and am I going to reach it? Am I going to fully be the I, me, and mine that I can be? We get that sense that, hey, I'm better than this. I could be better than this. What's going on? And then conversely, what the Buddha taught is that without dukkha, we actually can experience complete peace as possible, complete contentment as possible, ease and wholeness as possible. And what's interesting, I think, that uh, many of us in the West experience is that, or I think implicit in for those maybe untrained worldlings, as the Buddha calls people, who don't have exposure to the Dharma or who don't have exposure to these teachings, we are taught, it's implicit in our economy and in our media, you know, how our teacher David Loy talks about institutionalized greed, hatred, and delusion, that these are all very personal failings, right? Um you know, that, that most of the people around us have figured out how to live really meaningful and full lives, except we're not figuring that out quite out yet. That this is our own private failure. Have any of you thought, sitting on your cushions or in your chairs or however you're beautifully meditating in whatever posture, that, wow, this is so personal. I am such a personal failure. I'm sure none of you have thought that, have you? (laughs) And what happens is that, um, you know, based on this socialization and just this, the nature of dukkha itself, the nature of ignorance actually, of avijja, of ignorance, is that this becomes part of our identity, right? We're the person who can't maintain a good relationship. We're the person who can't figure out how to have a successful career. We're the person who can't figure out how to save enough money or make enough money or even, you know, how to hold the sangha together or whatever, hold the family together not good enough parents, not good enough friends, not good enough siblings, not good enough sons and daughters and transgendered children. Without some mindfulness, dukkha seems really personal. So um, the Buddha, uh, what I'd like to talk about is a little bit more definitional stuff. The second half of my talk is how mindfulness transforms dukkha. So that's the good part. But I want to talk a little bit more about what the Buddha taught about um, how we might look at dukkha, how we might look for dukkha. So uh, the Buddha taught that there's three types of dukkha. And actually, someone asked that last night. What are the three types of dukkha? And uh, 
Aaron really nailed it. No, I think it was during the uh, it was during uh, the eight fifteen sit. She nailed it really well. What are the three types of dukkha? The first, of course, we know, just a little reminder, are dukkha dukkha. And that's the suffering of suffering. And that's pretty much ordinary suffering of associated with giving birth. Though many people's births are going to be really easy. (laughs) As I look at our dear friend back there. Um, Growing old, physical illness, and the process of dying. Just being in a human body, we know what it's like. Uh, You know, that's part of being here two weeks plus, right? I mean, we have felt the dukkha dukkha. Just the dukkha of being in a body where our our body is uh, pulled, our muscles are pulled, or just anything associated with this. It's just painful, just plain old body pain. And actually, dukkha dukkha is also the pain of uh, big social conditions like, um, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia and ageism and poverty and income disparities and health disparities. That's just plain dukkha dukkha. That's all of those three types um, playing out at other levels of experience. And then the second level, the second type of dukkha that the Buddha taught about was viparanama dukkha, viparanama dukkha. And that's just the, uh, the dukkha of change, not just, it's the dukkha of change, of impermanence. And it's the suffering of holding on to things that are constantly changing, holding on to things that we like and watching them change and go away. I mean, look at uh, our relationships. I don't know if I could think of one relationship I've had that a person I've loved deeply that there hasn't been at some point some shift in it. And that shift is deeply, deeply, deeply painful. Or... The other type of viparanama dukkha is having what we don't want or just maybe being single, not having the job that we want, being partnered with someone who we feel like it's not working out well or, uh, you know, not having, uh, having resources one day and not having them the next, not having the resources we think we need or deserve. Viparanama dukkha fundamentally is suffering of losing what we want and suffering of having what we don't want. And then he taught about the third type of dukkha, sankara dukkha. And this, I think, is the most pervasive for us. Um, I heard this really brilliant talk about Sankara Dukkha by uh, Rebecca Bradshaw uh, when uh, I was at P2 at IMS, at the second six week of IMS, she gave a brilliant talk about Sankara Dukkha, about just the Dukkha of wanting some satisfaction in life. 
And all of the effort we put into all of these different things that we do, you know, our home lives, our careers, working out, our bodies, um, our relationships, you know, our dharma, even opening to, you know, opening to dukkha. It's just so unsatisfactory. And thinking, you know, if I only had this, my life would be different. Or if I only had that, my life would be different. And then realizing that nothing, nothing, no conditioned thing has any real inherent and lasting satisfaction in it. Nothing. That's really a sad, but really important thing to see for ourselves. No conditioned thing has any inherent satisfaction or will bring us any inherent satisfaction. Dukkha Dukkha, Vipa Ranama Dukkha, and Sankara Dukkha. And then the Buddha had another really brilliant teaching about dukkha. And that's the teaching of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. And he taught that the cause of suffering was craving or clinging. And classically, uh, he taught that there's three types of tanha, three types of craving or clinging. I love this first one. The first one is just seeking sensual pleasure. And that sounds a little classic. I heard, I think it was, um, it was uh, Stephen Batchelor talk about it as just plain wanting entertainment. And how, you know, I've talked to so many yogis and, you know, seen it in my life just our, you know, habitual craving for entertainment. You know, that's uh, oftentimes why, uh, why right effort, you know, letting go of the stories that we play over and over that we just don't want to let go of because they provide some level of entertainment for us, don't they? It's better to be suffering heartache or or in uh, the bliss of remembering uh, good stories about ourselves rather than neutral Vedana. You know, neutral or not pleasant or unpleasant Vedana and we will just create anything to have something more interesting to look at. So that's the first type of craving or clinging, seeking sensual pleasure or just wanting entertainment. The second type of tanha is the desire to be, just wanting to be somebody. I want to be the person who just finished sitting in the one-month retreat at Spirit Rock. Hey, we're thinking about that. We're going to go back to our sitting groove. Yeah, oh, yeah I just finished. 
I know you're busted, but hey, the three of us are going to be the people who just taught it. (laughs) (laughs) Not you guys. I'm just talking about myself. (laughs) Right? It's like, who are we? Who are we? We're the person that's walking the slowest during walking meditation. We're the person who's the most slow and mindful during in the dining room. The most, taking the, you know, most appropriate amount. (laughs) There's all these identities we can have. That's just wanting to be somebody, right? It's just wanting to be somebody. I'm, I'm the selfless one. I'm the kind one. I'm the mindful one. I'm the wise one. And then when we realize that even, you know, uh, putting on those identities like a banner, like waving around those like a banner, um, they're not all that satisfying. Even when we get those, even when we get all the accolades, you know. I mean, I've seen the most accomplished meditation teachers, Buddhist teachers in our Western Theravada tradition, you know, we've seen them behind the curtain it doesn't really do that much for them <laughs> to have just published this great book or just having given a weekend retreat that, you know, they earned like $60,000 for a two-day retreat. It doesn't, you know, it's not ultimately satisfying either. And that's the second type of tanha, the desire to be. And then often as we sit in here and we open up to all of the stuka we can also have a deep desire not to be, can't we? Just, wow, I just wish this was over. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I actually have heard that people were, had died and thought, wow, that's pretty lucky. (laughs) You never thought that? Like, wow, that's lucky. They're done. Wow, that must be nice. That's kind of sweet. (laughs) So, Tanha, seeking entertainment, seeking an identity, seeking not to be. So how do we transform dukkha? How are we working with factors right now that helps us transform dukkha? The Buddha once asked a student, if a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? The student replied, it is. The Buddha then asked, if the person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? The student replied again, it is. The Buddha then explained, In life, we cannot always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. And with the second arrow comes the possibility of choice. With the second arrow comes the possibility of choice. So, how does mindfulness transform dukkha? There's one way, this is one way to think about it, of course, one conceptual overlay 
I'm sure there's many uh, ways that we could think about how mindfulness transforms dukkha. But uh, tonight I'm going to talk about three ways that mindfulness transforms dukkha. It transforms dukkha first by changing what the mind is processing. By changing what the mind is processing. Secondly, mindfulness transforms dukkha with how the mind is processing experience. How the mind is processing. And then finally, the third way that mindfulness transforms dukkha is the view of what is being processed. So it's what, how, and the view that this really brilliant understanding of sati, satipatthana, satisampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension, how this helps us transform dukkha. So essentially, you know, what the Buddha taught is that we can't do anything about the first arrow, but we can transform our relationship to suffering. And this is what we're doing. So the Buddha, you know, talks in much more detail actually about suffering uh, when he talks about dependent origination. But, um, uh, you know, that's a pretty complicated, and actually it's so interesting, I did a talk on that and found out that any new theory of um, how um, information or how processes work People always say, but you know, that's exactly how the Buddha taught it. <laughs> For example, you know, it used to be just uh, kind of like a, in, uh, a, a very simple cause and effect model of how things work. And people said, yeah, that's what the Buddha taught cause and effect. And then there was like multi-level analysis and people thought, oh yeah, the Buddha taught multi-level analysis. And now, you know, I'm in academia, so I get all these terms. Now it's like complex systems theory. And it's like, oh my gosh, the Buddha taught complex systems theory. <laughs> and when you really look at dependent origination, it, you know, the more, uh, the more deep and inclusive our so-called human understanding of the process of becoming, he kind of anticipated it. You know, I'm a, I'm a devotional type, so I love the Buddha. So you're going to hear me say really cool things about him all night. <laughs> so that's just my devotional character that, you know, the Buddha to me was like the smartest person who ever lived. So um, how do we bring about, so in dependent origination and in this very dynamic system, we learn both how to bring about the ending of uh, dukkha temporarily, how we do it temporarily, and how we bring about a permanent stop to Buddha, to the, uh, to the, to dukkha. Probably stop with the Buddha too. So uh, temporarily what we do is we change how uh, we relate to the factors that we consider causing dukkha, and to permanently stop dukkha we practice the Eightfold Path. This is what uh, Christopher Germer says about that. Look at it this way. The instinctive response to danger, the stress response, consists of fight, flight, or freeze. 
These three strategies help us survive physically, but when they're applied to our mental and emotional functioning, we get into trouble. When there is no enemy to defend against, we turn on ourselves. Fight becomes self-criticism. Flight becomes self-isolation. And freeze becomes self-absorption. Getting locked into our own thoughts. So that's one way that, you know, our amygdala or our more primitive aspects of our mental functioning also contribute to our suffering. So what is the first strategy for changing suffering? It is to change the what. When we're doing our mindfulness, when we're on our cushion, when we're walking around, when we're uh, practicing continuity of mindfulness, we're changing the content of what the mind is processing. Usually, you know, the untrained worldling, the person who doesn't choose to go on a month-long retreat or a two-month retreat (laughs) to actually uh, change this mind-body process, they have automatic unconscious priorities for what they pay attention to, right? We don't choose what we pay attention to. And actually, the Buddha has this really brilliant uh, teaching, too, about distortions of perception, thought, and view, the vipalasas that will be my next talk. But right now, uh, just to remind us all that unless we train our mind, we have a very habitual, you know, habit patterns in our heart and mind that makes us pay attention to very specific stuff in our environment. You know, that's what uh, James teaches in his Awakening Joy course and what Rick Hansen teaches in, you know, the Buddha's brain and the untrained brain is that. And also what Christopher Germer's referring to here is that, you know, in, in the terms of evolutionary psychology, we're always looking out for, you know, what in our environment is going to hurt us. And we're always taking in the most negative things of our environment. And, you know, being raised in this culture, depending on, um, you know, different types of conceit we have of better than, worse than, or same as, you know, related to birth and related to money and related to education and knowledge and related to looks, um, you know, we we will pay attention to those things, those things that we think are going to bring us happiness. We haven't trained the mind. But, you know, what we have been doing together here for the last two weeks is changing from an automatic unconscious attention to a very specific conscious allocation of our attention. You know, we are, with wise effort, we are very specifically changing the habit pattern of what we're paying attention to in our environment, in our heart and mind, and uh, towards a much more wholesome and happy way of what we pay attention to. So again, this is automatic and conscious priorities versus conscious allocation of attention. And when we do this, when we do this, 
we are putting mindfulness putty and all those neuropathways that lead down, you know, the um, scanning the environment and the fight, flight and freeze response and creating deeper grooves, these neuropathways towards all of these wholesome mental qualities and all of these wholesome uh, states of mind. So that's the first way that mindfulness helps us transform suffering is rather than, you know, just getting involved in all the stories that arise in our mind, the stories, you know, the entertainment, rather than getting involved with the entertainment, we uh, very consciously change what we're looking at. And, you know, the Buddha taught us in the first foundation of mindfulness that that's a really wholesome uh, change in our attention. Rather than to, again, replay the uh, argument that you had that changed your relationship at work or in the family or in your school or whatever, we change to, wow, what is the mind state that is creating that habitual story in my mind? And it's like... You know, our awareness is like a pot of boiling water. And we throw in, you know, vegetarian bouillon. And it just permeates the entire awareness. And that awareness clouds, you know, how we perceive things. And it also, um, you know, helps produce certain memories, certain beliefs and stories that we have in our mind. And rather than, you know, just to play out the stories and stories again, we, uh, that's, you know, we change the what of what we're looking at. We look at the awareness itself and see if there's one of maybe the five hindrances that are clouding and uh, um, are uh, the flavor or the taste of the awareness that's giving rise to uh, having us pay attention to certain things and have certain memories. So we might look for just a flavor of aversion in our mind. Is there aversion in our mind? We might look for a flavor of greed, you know, wanting something sweet, wanting something uh, pleasant. Uh, do we have uh, sloth and torpor in our mind? You know, uh, you know, uh, not checking to see, am I over-efforting or under-efforting? That's a really important reflection. Am I striving too hard or am I not trying or not being mindful enough? You know, really checking in on that. Is there worry in the mind? Is all this planning about what's going on at my job or at my home, am I worrying about something? Am I restless? Is it hard for me to just settle down? And then, um, am I doubting? Do I lack confidence in this practice that I'm doing or lack, lack confidence in my ability to do it right? Do I lack confidence in these teachers? What do they know? And uh, do I lack confidence in... Um, our ability to really work and transform the mind. So in this way, we're changing the what. 
right? We're not looking at the stories, we're not following, we're not jumping on that train of thoughts and letting it take us to the next town. We're using mindfulness as a frame and looking deeper, you know, and actually um, uh, taking the Buddha's um, advice about what to look at. You know, the four foundations are things specifically to look for in the mind. And this um, takes me to the second way that mindfulness transforms dukkha. Changing the how. What we do is we leave the input of the mind the same so we don't necessarily shift you know what is arising in the mind heart in the moment or we don't try to shift what our attention is viewing in the moment but rather we change whether we look at it conceptually or unconceptually this is what Tupton, Tulku Tupton Rinpoche says about this, the moon itself. The human mind has a tendency to manufacture concepts and beliefs in relationship to things that are inherently transcendental. This often leads us to suffer the old curse of mistaking the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. The cause of this mistaken perception is the ego since the ego's only occupation is to sustain its flimsy existence or world of illusion. It always tries its best to create hindrances to the realization of truth. And, you know, I really, um, I've borrowed this language from one of my teachers, Rodney Smith, and kind of worked with it of these two types of... Um, these two types of uh, knowledge systems that we have. And I know I've said it probably every time I've had the mic. And that is that we have a conceptual, linear, um, quantitative um, knowledge system, and we have intuitive awareness. But guess what? There's actually names for that in uh, neuropsychological literature now. Um, actually, this um, rational, linear, conceptual mind is called propo propositional working memory. Propositional working memory. And this intuitive awareness is call, called implicational working memory. Implicational working memory. And that's exactly what we mean by we change the how. That we, um, that we work with experience. So if we're working with experience that arises in the mind and heart with the conceptual mind, we're trying to fix things. We have an idea in our mind about what things should be like and we're trying to fix it. You know, it should be like this. I should be... Uh, this person here, you know, insert your name here, 
should be calm and kind and wise. It should be like this. We should know the answer. We should be able to figure things out with this conceptual mind. If we add one and one, we should get two and that will be the answer to it. Like for example, I found that there's such a thing as a propositional and implicational memory. That's the answer to it. Science says that. So with this propositional or conceptual mind, uh, we're looking for the answer. And uh, you know, when we see in our mind aversion, anger, or avoiding, you know, we have the reaction of that's not what's supposed to be in there. You know, we're very judgmental about things. And uh, when we see things that we like in there, we can identify them. We see kindness and wisdom. Yeah, I am kind and I am wise. But even though we see all of those things, they always fall short. They always fall short. But then we have intuitive awareness. So with mindfulness, mind, with mindfulness, we're letting go of conceptual overlay, right? Over and over again, we see conceptual or this propositional working memory arise where we try to conceptually figure something out. And we, with our wise intention, with the what of what we're doing, we let it go. We let it go over and over again this propositional working memory, this linear conceptual goal-oriented doing. We let it go over and over again and we come back to intuitive awareness and mindfulness that has the inherent qualities of curiosity and interest and engagement and uh, allowing and... um, accepting and letting be and kindness. And we see that these very, this very clinging that we might have in the conceptual mind, this wanting to fix things is actually in itself the cause of our suffering. We see that deeply wanting it to be different, wanting it to be otherwise, is in itself the cause of our suffering. But with mindfulness, with strong mindfulness, you know, we develop the seven factors that I talked about we develop strong mindfulness and we set the intention, may strong mindfulness arise. Just setting our intention in the mind, may mindfulness arise. May investigation, may interest arise in what is happening right now. May interest arise. May effort and energy arise. May joy arise, may tranquility arise, 
may concentration arise, may equanimity arise, and they do. In that sense, we are being letting go rather than doing letting go. That's intuitive awareness, implicational working memory versus conceptual overlay, prepositional working memory. And what does this do? What does this do? How does this impact suffering? Can you think about how this would impact suffering? To me, this was almost intuitive of how this actually impacted suffering. What it does is it just brings a much more holistic understanding of what's going on, right? I mean, we understand that. Um, that even in the midst of the first arrow, we can still have deep well-being. You know, that we can hold uncomfortable body sensations and uh, even, you know, blissful body sensations. We can hold them with equanimity and not have them be the, uh, have to have it be one way for the source of our well-being. We can hold... Uh, pleasure, we can hold unpleasant sensation, we can even hold neutral feeling or boredom with well-being. You know, we can hold it with a deep sense of, yes, this is okay. This is part of what being human is. We can realize that this is not a personal event. This is what it means to be human. You know, we can let it remind us that we're a part of an exquisite club of humans that are breathing right now. And yes, we have body pain, and yes, we have emotional pain, and we can be okay with all of that as well. You know, I think um, psychologists might call it perspective taking. You know, realizing that external conditions, if, you know, do we put, you know, uh, do we put foam on everything on the earth or do we put on slippers? You know, we can't change how, uh, we can't change much of the external world. So to have the external world be um, the source of our happiness or well-being is just an impossible endeavor. It has to be really what's going on with our own mind-body process and bringing discernment and wisdom through intuitive awareness that changes, that makes us see very directly without conceptual overlay that uh, we can hold really the most hugest lo uh, losses with, within a field of joy, within a field of tranquility. And I think we've all experienced that. We know that's possible. Oh my gosh, I'm out of time. So that's the second way mindfulness transforms suffering. The first way is changing the what, what we're paying attention to. Not letting all of those uh, negative mental habit patterns drag us down into the 
stories of the selfing and greed, hatred, and delusion. And then secondly, changing the how, you know, not trying to figure out things conceptually, but, you know, letting mindfulness as the data collection system for intuitive awareness, let it, you know, wisdom arise for us to see the bigger picture and to see our ability to be quite well in the face of all of that. This is what Christina Fellman says about that. In the face of suffering, the shift from aversion to welcoming, befriending and accepting is the most radical emotional and psychological shift a person can make. It is a shift catalyzed by mindfulness from being a helpless victim or sufferer at the mercy of the depression or whatever, name your mental disorder or physical disorder, into being a participant in the healing process. These first steps into understanding the landscape of suffering are also the first steps into the landscape of compassion. And then third, the third way that mindfulness helps us transform suffering is by changing the view. Changing the view. So many of our teachers talk about how important it is to do our practice with right view. I hope that uh, Alexis will talk about that. His uh, teacher, Saida Utejania, is always talking about the importance of right view in our mindfulness practice to have the right approach. And in that sense, you know, he says that awareness is not enough. Knowing what is going on in the mind is not enough, but discernment and wisdom are really important, are really important for the alleviation of suffering. And how do we, how do we bring wisdom? How do we bring right view to our mindfulness? It might be by investigating our understanding of the object in our mind. And actually one way is from a top-down. It's a top-down, bottom-up approach for right view. Top-down, bottom-up. The top-down is, you know, the Buddha had very specific things in the four foundations of mindfulness. He said, see these things, look for these things. And, you know, that's very excellent instructions of what, you know, when we're bored, when, you know, we can't figure out what's going on, you know, we can do a top-down approach. You know, is there tanha in my mind? Is there desire for sense pleasure? Do I want entertainment? Am I looking for entertainment? You know, craving for entertainment feels like this. This is what it feels like. Indulging in story feels like this. This is what that feels like. Wanting to be somebody feels like this. Wanting not to be somebody feels like this. Investigating dukkha. And then bottom up. You know, top down is, you know, looking. What did the Buddha say is wise reflection, wise uh, discernment? What should we look for? And then bottom up again. You know, using our mindfulness and seeing it with what we just talk, changing the how we look, not with conceptual overlay, but 
pulling out the uh, the um, pulling out uh, the direct knowing of that experience with mindfulness without a lot of conceptual overlay, and maybe having a few questions to um, investigate our understanding of what we're seeing. How are we understanding what we're seeing? For example, you know, we might uh, investigate, you know, we've seen this uh, flavor in our mind of aversion or even a flavor of joy. We might ask ourselves, what narrative does this experience condition or give rise to? Does it give rise to generosity and to, uh, you know, respect and patience or does it give rise to greed, hatred, and delusion. We might investigate in this moment what is being known. And this is a reflection that we can come back to when we're a little bit lost because there's always something being known by awareness. And we can always come back to what is being known in this moment? What is this? We can ask the question very simply, what is this? What is this? Without having, you know, and the trick is for me when I was doing this, the trick for me is not having to know what it is. Even just to ask the question, what is this? and not having to have a strong sensation and to know what it is, to actually be okay with the unknowing. And then um, some questions that uh, we can ask ourselves, we can examine the uh, assumptions, the unarticulated unconscious assumptions we have of any um, object that we're noticing in our heart mind, any object, we can ask, do I think this will be here forever? And that is not understanding the impermanent nature of everything that arises. And we can ask, does this experience need to be pleasant for it to be okay? And that's just not understanding unsatisfactoriness or dukkha itself. And then finally asking of this experience, am I making this happen or is this happening to me? Do I think that I'm making this happen? Actually, one of my yogis came in today. She had the most beautiful saying, she said. Or they said, they said, I'm waiting for the pain to go away, and the pain is waiting for me to go away. (laughs) I'm waiting for the pain to go away, and the pain is waiting for I to go away. Don't you love it? That's wisdom arising. And that's realizing, you know, this isn't really happening to me or I'm not making this happen. That's an, that is an insight into that. So we can, you know, bring right, right view by seeing whether we have unarticulated assumptions about what is in our heart-mind. Is this, will this last forever? Will this be, does this need to be pleasant for it to be okay? 
And am I making this happen or is this happening to me? So my wonderful yogi brethren. Another thing I wanted to say is one reflection that I think is really important is that, and I think I've probably said this too, it's my, uh, my mantra that we're all perpetrators. Until full enlightenment, we are all perpetrators of greed, hatred, and delusion. In fact, the three of us were in the teacher room uh, arguing over who was the biggest perpetrator of greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> Uh, so just today, yesterday, what happened was um, one of my, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, work at the University of Washington, and they started a University of Washington mindfulness program, and I had a lot of judgment about the people who were running it, and I got an email yesterday, the day before, that said, on sale, UW mindfulness sweatshirts, you know, I am mindfulness, this is what mindfulness looks like. And I just had this incredible strong reaction, like, who are these people? Don't they know this is my religion, you know? <laughs> How are they being so crass and uh, commercializing this? And I actually had, was very unskillful and had some really harsh speech and wrote back to this, these people immediately and said, hey, man, take me off the advisory board. You, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like you're asking me for any advice about anything. And I actually had a pretty, you know, um, uh, I was definitely perping un unwise speech. And I, uh, I called a dear friend of mine, uh, Musha, Mik uh, Musha Makita, many of you probably know her, from East Bay Meditation, and I asked her, I said, was I right, wasn't I right to do that? <laughs> and she said, actually, Bonnie, absolutely not. You were perpetrating wrong speech. <laughs> and it was so interesting. I was so happy to see in that moment that I so, I actually didn't react and say, no, I was right. I said, wow, that's interesting. Actually, because I have been practicing with all of you wonderful yogis and I'm riding the wave of your momentum, it was like, wow, that's interesting, Mushim. Tell me more. What is it? You know, how could I have understood that better? And she said, well, Bonnie, you know, you're on that advisory board. Did you ask her what they were going to do? Did you inquire about their understanding of mindfulness or how they were holding it? I mean... Did you, you know, try to make sure that your values and feelings and definitions were aligned with what they were doing? Or did you just say, oh, yeah, I'm on the advisory board? <laughs> and I said, of course that's what I did. <laughs> so it was like another banner that I had. And yet, how dare me say, I don't want the sweatshirt, right? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And it was so great. It was just so great to say yes, you know. And I totally was okay. Like, okay, Bonnie, you perped and you're okay. You know, <laughs> discernment arose and, you know, uh, discernment arose and we can let that go. And next time you see somebody perping, maybe you'll remember that. And you'll be less judgmental, right? I mean, that's why we need to so open to all of our stuff. We so have to open to it because, hey, if we think that there, it's only other people doing it, you know, that's a lack of real uh, discernment about what's going on in this mind-body process. And I could tell you lots of other 
things that have happened in the last couple of days about perpetration, but I'm out of time. I know, all the personal stories of my own greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's so wonderful to see it with clarity and without a lot of attachment, right? You know, it doesn't have to be sticky. This is what it looks like when it's not sticky. It's like, wow, yeah, I did that. And I can see that now, and I'm setting an intention not to do that again. Yeah. So... Here's a last quote from Andrew Alinsky. As we ascend this ladder of evolving meaning, we recognize that much of what Buddhist teachings address is a deeper emotional sukha and dukkha, which has more to do with habits of our mind than with the pleasant and unpleasant. Right? It's not just about, oh, this feels good, this doesn't feel good, which is how we usually experience or think about dukkha. It's more to do with our deep habit patterns of our mind. Here the sense of the word shifts slightly away from pleasure and pain in the direction of health and well-being on the one hand and emotional distress or disease on the other. The Buddha taught for the welfare and benefit of all beings, and those teachings instruct us on how to turn away from what is harmful to ourselves and to others, and to cultivate what inclines the mind to uh, the welfare and benefit of everyone, not just ourselves. We not only want to feel good and be happy, we also want to be well in a profound sense of the word. The phrase supporting meta practice comes to mind in this regard. May we all be safe. May we all be well. May we all be free from harm. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.